Keov is the yard site of the Arizal, and it's also the yard site of my Rebbe, Rebbe Dorfman, Zechren of Racha. And I spoke a little bit in that year, we spoke a little bit about his early, his birth, his early, the early years of his life, and when he came to Breslov, and he ended up remaining at, 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 as a teenager, 14 years old approximately, he came to Uman and stayed there and got married at the age of 16, which in those days among, among Hasidim wasn't so uncommon. And he ended up living in Uman, in the city of Uman, when he first got married, I believe. And they were extremely, extremely poor at the time. He mentioned that his wedding, the musicians were, one of them had a pot and a metal spoon. That was the drummer banging at, at the wedding. And he said that he didn't really, he had a very small apartment with a, a, a low roof and he didn't have money to buy furniture. So he borrowed furniture from some different friends at the time. He borrowed two beds, somehow put together two beds, which were not the same height. He remembers that his bed and his wife's bed were not the same height at all. And borrowed a table from another person and one or two chairs from a different person. And then a short while, a few weeks after the wedding, there's a knock on the door. The person who had lent him the table said, uh, I, I need my table back. So the Rabbi Michal's response was, can you wait till after Shabbos? So the person said, yeah, yeah, okay, but right after Shabbos. A short while later, another knock on the door, I need my chairs back, the other person. And in this manner, within a couple of days, they were asking for all the different things back. And each time Rabbi Michal said, can you wait till after Shabbos? And he said he did it to give himself a little bit of time to be mispalil. And he said he was, he was waiting, watching, he was curious to see how's Hashem going to handle this? What's Hashem going to do? It wasn't, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't, he didn't feel pressure. There was a, a curiosity. How's Hashem going to handle this? That was the level of bitochen, complete faith and trust in Hashem. And he never really explained what happened afterwards. But he, he implied, you see, I'm here today, 70 years after that. So I guess things worked out. And then he went through what he went through. He ended up, him and many of the Breslavers ended up being rounded up by the KGB. And he was sent to Siberia for six years and seven months. And he said that there wasn't a day that he didn't cry during those six years and seven months pleading with Hashem to get him out of there. And uh, different things that he went through there, <clears throat> he mentioned that he saw what went on inside there, like in many prison systems, that there's a mafia and there's all kinds of cutthroats that, that kill people in these places. And he studied the situation and he, he observed who's the leader, who's the, the head of the ruffians, the head of the tough guys there. And at one point when he received a package, some kind of a small package from his wife or anybody who sent him a package, he right away went to share it with this big mafioso in a sense that was there. And when the people saw him eating with this mafioso, they understood this guy's danger. You have to 
can't start up with this person at all. This served as a, a protection for him during some of the time that he was there. He finally ended up getting out of Siberia and, and getting back together with his family. And eventually he said that he applied to leave the Soviet Union over a period of 38 years. He prayed to Hashem and pleaded with Hashem to get him out of there. <clears throat> And, and each time he would apply, he had to wait a while to get the answer. And the response was always, yet, no. And the final time when he gave in an application, he remembers, you know, this was after so many years of waiting and hoping to get out. When all of his friends had already left Teretz Yisrael, he gave in the application. And then a, short, a while later, he called up the, the visa office to ask any news about his application. And he said, he's, he's holding the phone and, and they answered, they said, Dorfman, one minute, we, we, have, we have news for you. We have a response. There was a big meeting over here and, and there was a decision that was made that we're never accepting your application ever again. And he said, he heard, he heard this on the phone, the way this woman was yelling, and he, he, faint, he almost fainted on the spot. He was ready to just collapse. And then he said that every time, every time they rejected him, he felt as if he died and he sat shiver for himself. Like it took it, went through a, a sort of like a mourning period and then a shloishin and then scraped himself up from the floor to start again, to start praying again with, with fervor, with confidence that I am going to win, I am going to get out of here. And sure enough, if it was after they said to him that we're never accepting an application for you again, he remembered what Paro had told Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu came to plead with Hashem to let the Jews out of Mitzrayim, towards the end, Paro said, I never want to see your faces again. And then a short while later came Makas Bechiros, Hashem killed all the firstborn, and that's when the song Paroi Be Pijama came up. Paroi Be Pijama, Bien Sahalaylo, Paroi Be Pijama, Bien Paroi came out in his pajamas in the middle of the night, searching for Moshe Rabbeinu and Arakoin. Where are they? I want to let the Jews, I want the Jews to get out of here. So Michal remembered that story and once again strengthened himself to to persevere in Tefillah till he got out, till he got out of Russia. We'll close for now with one final, very, very important thing that he used to love to tell over. Where he lived afterwards, which was a suburb of Moscow, a, a city called Malachovka, where there were Jews, there were many Jews. On Sukkot, there were only two people who put up a Sukkah in the city. The rabbi, the rabbi of the city, I believe it might have been a Chabad rabbi, and Rebichel. Everybody else was terrified to put up a sukkah <clears throat> for the holiday of sukkahs. And, <clears throat> and we'll mention two, two stories. One is that Rebichel, there was no mikveh there. The, the closest mikveh was in Moscow, which was 30 kilometers away. And I believe Remichel had to take a bus and a train to get there. And it took about an hour and a half each way. It was a three-hour round trip to go to the mikvah on, on Erev Shabbos. 
And the Michal felt that if he would have the opportunity to go to the mikveh every day, he'd be a heavenly angel. He'd, it would be a stairway to heaven for him. And he once called an engineering to check to see how far, how easily can he get to water from his house. And he said it was a matter of 10 meters, not, not that far at all. <clears throat> and he was told it would cost 6,000 ruble to construct a mikveh in his house. <clears throat> to him, 6,000 ruble was like $6 million. He was very, very poor and couldn't do it. And he always imagined, imagine if I had my own mikvah, if I could only be zoichet to have my own mikvah. And he said that the Zohar Kodesh says, less re'usa tava de isavid. There is never a Jew who has a good desire, who wants to do something good, and it goes lost. Hashem always watches over those good desires and sees to it that it should come to fruition. So he said when he finally got out of Russia and came to Eretz Yisrael and lived where he lived, on Hoshea Street in Yerushalayim, he lived about 100 meters away from Satmar, the Satmar Shul, which had a mikvah there. And they gave him a, a key to the mikvah <clears throat> because he used to go at midnight at Chatzois, when just about nobody else went at that time, when the mikvah was cleanest and empty, nobody else there, he would go there at that time. <clears throat> so he said, look what Hashem did for me. Not only did I have my private mikvah, but if it were my own, I would have to clean it. I'd have to pay for the oil, the fuel and everything. Here, everything was being done for me. They bring fuel for me. They clean it for me. Everything is being done for me. And he always thought of this that look how Hashem did, didn't forget my good, the, the desire that I had over all of those years, wanting to have a mikvah, wanting to be able to go to the mikvah daily. We mentioned sukkah, we'll close with this story. I believe it was the final year before Remichel ended up leaving, leaving Russia, that, that he put up the sukkah, and it, was, it wasn't like today's sukkahs, which are customized and, and they make it in such a way that it's so easy to put it together, four walls and just, there was a sukkah made from cheap boards that had to be nailed together. It was a major, major difficult effort. And Remichel didn't really have anybody to help him. He had daughters, he didn't have any sons, and there were no other Jews there who were willing to participate in, in this type of thing. They were terrified. <clears throat> So he had worked very, very hard to put up the sukkah and to put up the schach. And when he was putting up the finishing touches, he was standing on a ladder, putting up, adjusting the schach, and suddenly a downpour, a marble, like a, a flood of water came gushing down from heaven, <clears throat> pouring, getting drenched. And his sukkah was attached to the house. There was a window from the house leading into the sukkah, his wife was standing at the window, watching him getting drenched with this downpour of rain. And he remembers hearing her saying, oy, 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 oy. And then suddenly the whole sukkah collapsed, the schach and everything collapsed on him while he's standing on this ladder. And he remembers, the, 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 he said, the rains were coming down from heaven and the rain was coming out of my eyes. 
crying, standing there crying, crying, crying at his predicament. And he said, sure enough, this downpour finished. The sun came out. He ran to a store, a local store there, and bought these large pieces of tar that people use to tar a roof. These large, like, plates, you know, that are five feet by, by three feet of tar to tape up the walls of the circuit, to tape it up with this tar, to scotch tape it together, in a sense, to hold it together. And when, when he would sit in his sukkah in Yerushalayim, Hashem blessed him that in Yerushalayim he had a porch where he lived. And, and at one point he was able to extend the porch a little bit and he was able to sleep in the sukkah. And he, he would always remember and tell over the story how he remembered what he went through there in Russia how difficult it was to perform every mitzvah. And that circus, when the whole thing collapsed on him, but never gave up, never gave up, always trusted that Hashem is going to get him out of there. And all of this is going to have a happy ending, which is what it did, Baruch Hashem. He made it to Eretz Yisrael. His children made it to Eretz Yisrael. He took a position as one of the leaders of Breslov in Yerushalayim and Eretz Yisrael and succeeded in, in beautifying the shul, the major shul in Meisharim in Yerushalayim, and increasing the kolel, increasing everything, and also building the kloiz in Uman, the large shul in Uman, the shul and the mitzvahs, which served well, tens of thousands of people over the years. Shem should help that his chus, the Zohar Kodesh says, what, what a person is involved in while they're living in this world, <coughs> They continue to be involved in that in the future world. The love of his life was Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, always davening for everyone. Hashem should help that his tefillahs should accompany us now to help us get out of his gullahs, to help us be zoicha, to be in Uman for Rosh Hashanah, Hashem, safe and, and in good health and well. And we are to see the Gaula Shlaima would be coming of Moshiach and Herab Yameinu, Amen Vyameinu.